You're listening to Connection Church's podcast. This is a really meaningful song. It is well with my soul. And it seems like the last several weeks in our nation, things have not been so well with our situation. So I wanted to take a moment to pray that that things become well with our souls, that our nation begins to to mourn and grieve and um, in such a way that honors and reflects the character of God. It has been a difficult season for our nation. So I want to take a moment just to pray before we're seated and then we'll get into the, the teaching. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. Lord, we pray that during this time of mourning and grieving and confusion and chaos and disruption, Lord, that you bring a peace that surpasses our understanding. Lord, we can't make sense of the situations that we are seeing, Lord, on the news. We can't make sense of the injustices that are being done. We can't make sense of the shootings and the other tragedies that are just unfolding before our eyes, it seems like, every day. We can't make sense of it because it's sin, Father, and sin doesn't make sense. So, Father, be with us. Convict our hearts, Lord, to to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Lord, use us as your hands and feet to show a divided nation. Lord, we're divided socially and politically and theologically. Lord, just let the church be the representative of unity that is needed. In Jesus' name, I said, amen. You may be seated. Well, my name is Cody. I'm the student pastor here at Connection, and I am glad to be with you this morning. Um, Chase did a phenomenal introduction for our series during worship. The series is God Honestly, and as he said, it's a Psalm of David. It's the Psalms of David. And I want to begin this morning by asking a question, and it is actually the first question that has ever that was ever asked, and that is, where are you? If you remember in Genesis 3, 8 and 9, right after sin had entered the picture, right after Adam and Eve had chose rebellion and rejection, sin entered the picture and then there became a distance between them and God. And God being gracious and merciful, we see that God immediately pursues man in spite of the disruption that was caused. And he asked them a significant question. He says, where are you? Where are you? Now, this is not a geographical question. God knew where their physical location was. This is a theological question. God was asking them, what is your heart's condition and position towards me? That is essentially what that question was saying. God, here's the thing. God knew where they were spiritually. He knows the condition and position of our hearts. The question was meant to have them uncover where they were and God to to lead them to a place of confession and recognition of the disruption that had taken place and the need for the devotion of God in their life. So as we begin this this series and as we begin to walk through uh, Psalm 63, I want that question to be on our hearts this morning. Where are you? Where am I? What is our heart's condition and position towards God? So with that said, if you have your Bibles, go to Psalm 63. Psalm 63, we're gonna read all of it and we're gonna pray. Did you guys enjoy worship this morning? I love it. It was very good, very good. Really fits the context of what we're 
what we're going to be discussing. So if you're there, Psalm 63, if not, it's going to be up on the screen. It says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the night, in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down in the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for, their mouth, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray. Father, as we begin diving into your word and Psalms, Lord, convict our hearts, show us how to have the hunger and thirst for you that David does. Help us find that David-like devotion in the midst of all the disruptions of life. Lord, we thank you that this psalm is a confession for us to proclaim, to declare over our lives, Lord, that we are hungry and we are thirsty for you here and now. Lord, as we are searching our hearts regarding our heart's position and condition towards you, continue to impress, impress that question, where are you upon our hearts, that we may come to know you that we may come to experience you in, an, in, an, in a completely devoted way that leads us to desiring you every single day. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Well, guys, on Monday mornings, my, Mondays are my day off. I have a routine. It is a very normal part of my life. I've been doing it for the last two years. And what I do, and Monday mornings, I take my wife to work here, and then I take my kids to school, and then I go to a local coffee shop. And there's a, I order the spe, a specific drink, Every week, I'm a creature of habit. There's only one drink that I'll get, and I go to a specific table. And at this table, I will read my Bible. I will do some studying. I will do some praying. And this is my favorite spot. I'm not going to tell you where it is because I like to be alone on, on those days, so I don't want you to come bother me on Monday morning. So I'm not going to tell you where it is. Just do a round of the coffee shops in the area, and you might find me there. But I go to this table. It has been a, become a normal part of my life. Every Monday for the last two years, this is what I do. I've noticed with the last several weeks, though, a woman has been showing up. And she gave me the eye, kind of like she wanted my spot. You know, she's been doing that for a couple weeks. And what I noticed is every time I go in there, she would look at the table when I'd sit down and give me this look like, Ugh, I was going to get there. See, what happens is she's already in line. But as soon as I walk in the door, every week, this has been my routine to make sure that spot's secure. I first walk my bag over to the table. I put it on there to say, it's taken, thank you. you know? So I put my, put my bag there and then I move back into the line. And then you can tell she's just like, Ugh. So I do the Christian thing and I stay right where I am. So I, I just stay at that table and I get that look. So last, actually a few weeks back, we arrived kind of at the same time. Things got interesting, to say the least. There's something divine about this spot, I'm telling you. She was in line, I was in line, but, or I wasn't in line. As I walked in the door, she turned around, saw me in church, I kid you not. She did a full-on sprint out of the line to my table and, and hovered over it and put her bag on it and then looked at me like, 
I was a little upset. I didn't show it. I didn't show it. But I grabbed my coffee and I left. There were plenty of other tables in there. But I left. It was a disruption in my normal activity. And Christy, my wife, she said, Cody, you got to be careful like sharing the story. What if she's here? I do want to say, if you are here, I would love to meet you to arrange a time of custody for this table. So if you're here, please come find me after service. I would much like to do that. But she had caused a disruption in the normal routine that I had. And this is a silly illustration of a greater truth that oftentimes when our lives are disrupted, the normal day-to-day activities in our, in our faith, in our jobs, in our homes, when the normal is disrupted, we have a tendency to disconnect from God or feel like we are disconnected from God. And this psalm this morning is specifically dealing with how we desire God in the disruptions of life. If you're taking notes, that is the sermon title. I like sermon titles. They help me out a lot. Desiring God in the disruptions of life. You see, David is in the midst of a disruption when he wrote this. It says at the top of the psalm, it says that he was in the wilderness. He was in a disruption. See, at this point in time, he was a king. He was the king of Israel. And he had a son named Absalom. And his son was highly intimidated, or not highly intimidated, highly envious of his dad. The son thought he could do the king's job better. So he rallied a whole bunch of people against the king, and David had to flee in exile for the sake of the nation. He saved many lives by going into exile. And when it says he's in the wilderness, he is in the desert of Judah, nothing but hills, sand, and caves. He took a handful of men with him. He left the sanctuary behind, which represented the presence of God. He left the ark behind, which represented the presence of God. Grabbed a handful of people and went into the desert. He is being pursued by somebody he loves, but not because they love him, but because they want to kill him. He is writing in the context of a disruption. And this had happened before to him. See, his mentor and father-in-law, before he was king, pursued him in the wilderness, tried to kill him. He became intimidated and insecure about David and wanted him dead. So David was running around the wilderness, not only from Saul, but from the Philistines. And if you remember correctly, David is the one who slayed the Philistine Goliath. So he's running from Saul and the Philistines because the Philistines love him. And he's trying to survive it. But what we find in this psalm is that even in the disruption, even in the chaos, even when the situation doesn't make sense, he is able to find the thirst, the hunger, the longing for God. And this psalm, it causes us to reflect on two things that I want us to to reflect on this morning. The first thing is the object of our desire and where our desires are. The second thing is our devotion. Oftentimes these two things go hand in hand, but there's a need to separate them for the sake of the text and clarity. But when I'm reading the Psalm, I don't get the sense that he wants out of the desert. It'd be nice. Sure, we don't like the disruptions in our lives. But the one thing that I see is him pursuing God all the more in the midst of the desert. He does, he's not interested in getting out. He's interested in finding God in the desert. That's something I want us to keep in mind 
as we're talking about where our desires and where our devotions are and where we are in our faith. So let's, let's begin this. In Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. That's an important phrase. That leads us to the first thing is reflecting on our desires. What, where, where are our desires and what is the object in which we have our desires? See, there is a theory that was, that it, that was put into place several years ago by sociologists and scientists called the secularization theory. And what this theory basically said is that the more technologically, scientifically we advance, we become, the less you'll see religions and the need for communing with the divine because we'll be able to explain away everything. And that was the thought. And many people got behind this thought. The more modern that we become, the less of a need there'll be for God. What the problem though is the opposite has, has happened. We today have more religions than have, we have ever seen in, the, in, the, in documented, recorded history. We have more religions that exist today. Yes, a lot of them are contradictory. A lot of them are invalid. All of them are invalid except one in our conviction here at Connection. But this points to a greater truth that we need to, that we need to wrestle with. That regardless of how technologically advanced we become, the, as scientifically uh, well-educated we become, people are still craving to commune with the divine. There is a longing in the hearts of people. This is a universal longing. This is a cross-cultural and historical longing. As far back as we can see, people have desired and have thirsted to communicate, to commune with the divine. Not only that, but they have desired to correct what they believe is wrong in the world and what is wrong with us. There is a universal inclination that something is off. Now we may disagree on how to go about correcting these issues. Because of sin, we begin to make things subjective. But why is this craving, why is this thirst embedded in our souls and in the souls of everybody? Why is there a thirst? Simone Will, she was a, a philosopher and, and a political a activist and a social activist. She had said something that really drives home this point about explaining away things and it's still not removing the desire. She, she, she said, when you have a crying baby, I've got two of them. When you have a crying baby and the baby that's crying because he or she is hungry and you tell the baby there's no food, does that remove the hunger? When you explain to them, hey, we don't have the food with us right now, does that remove the hunger? No, it doesn't. We just spent 16 hours on our way back from Texas where we moved from, back to Georgia. And there was a couple times where we had to tell our kids, hey, y'all are fussy, we get it, we know, but guess what, we don't have food. It didn't help. There was still a hunger. I explained, the, I explained what I believed were the facts, but it still didn't satisfy the desire of the soul, the desire of their bellies in this case. And that's what we're seeing. So where does this come from? See, in Ecclesiastes 3, I believe we find an answer to this. 3, 11, and 12. And this is most likely David's son, Solomon, writing this. He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into, heart, into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful, to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is the gift of God to man. 
Notice that. God has set eternity, eternity upon the hearts of man. There is a longing that God has created. And until this longing in our soul is connected to the Lord who established it, we will forever search for significant satisfaction and security in things outside of ourselves to try to fill this desire that we have in our hearts because this desire does exist. And if we are being honest with ourselves, we know it does. And we can examine it just by looking at the things that we run to for the satisfaction. If you don't believe me, then why do we crave the relationships with other people? Why do we crave the new car? Why do we constantly crave the new job, the new paycheck? <clears throat> These things aren't bad things in and of themselves, but they point to a desire that, that has to be satisfied. You know, and Tim Keller once said that we have a hunger, but that doesn't prove there's food. In the same way, our souls have a hunger. That doesn't necessarily prove that there's a God, but it's a good indicator that there's something there to satisfy us. I want you guys to reflect on that because David, what David is saying here is that he's found the satisfaction. And oftentimes we search forever and not find the satisfaction. Russell Brand, he says this, he says, drinking and doing drugs is not my problem. Reality is my problem. Drinking and doing drugs is my solution to the reality. He has a desire to be satisfied. So we run to things. But David says he's found it. It's the first thing he says here. He says, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. See, David has a deep hunger. And he has found, he has tasted that the Lord is good. And he has found that nothing compares to what God has done in his life. Nothing and he wants us to examine that for ourselves today. He doesn't desire just to know about God. See, that's not satisfying. That's not satisfying, just to know about God. David has a thirst to know God more and more and more. To so much so that he's explaining the way he's thirsting to God, about or for God, by alluding to the man who is in the desert himself, without food, without water. He said, if I don't have you, I'm undone, I'm dead. This is a mark of spiritual maturity, is when we go from just wanting to know about God to knowing God. Where are you in this? Because I believe that a lot of what we see in Christianity today, in nominal Christianity, is that a lot of people have been indoctrinated. They know the stuff with their head, but it hasn't moved to their heart. And there was a season in which this was true for, for me, pretty much for everybody who comes to faith. There's a season where we want to know about God rather than knowing him. It goes on to say, earnestly, I seek you. This word earnestly, in your translation, it may say early, I seek you. What he's trying to convey is that the first thing I think about in the morning and the last thing I think about before I lay my head down to go to sleep is you, oh God his day, his week, his month, his year is centered upon his thirst for God. Is that true of us? What are we eagerly pursuing? What is the first thing our mind shifts to when we wake up? What is the last thing we think about? What wakes us up at night? What are the things that we are urgent about? Because what I'm trying to get us to un uncover is where our desires are and what object they're in, because until we displace our misplaced desires, we will not sense the true thirst and desire for God. 
Our misplaced desires have got to be dealt with if we want to get to the point of having a a David-like desire for God. He goes on to say in verse verse two, he says, I've looked upon the sanctuary. He's longing for the, he's, he's, he's remembering and reflecting and longing for the presence of God that he sensed in the sanctuary. But what, if you go back and you read 1 Samuel 23, or you go back and read 2 Samuel 15 through 19, you see him both times when he was in the wilderness, he was still able to talk with God. So what David is learning is that the same God that dwells in the sanctuary is active and alive and is working in the sands of the desert. He is uncovering this and he's saying, I remember your, I've seen your power and glory. He's reflecting on God's faithfulness because he's experiencing it where he is. See, in disruptions, we sometimes feel like God is disconnected from us. We feel like we can only experience God at the front of the altar or when the music's as loud as it can be or when the lights are going crazy or when these things are taking place. We, we confuse the Spirit's movement for our personal sensations. But this is what I love about our more peeled back service is that we're, we're, learning to how, we're learning how to authentically worship God. And this is something we have to come back to and recover over and over and over again, is that God is not confined to the four walls of the church. You can find him in your home, you can find him at work, you can find him at school. His location is not specific to a specific place. We have to remember that. We tend to think that, we're, that God is disconnected from us. We tend to say things like when, when we go through times of disruption in our lives where things don't make sense or maybe we're in a desert spiritually of our own, we tend to, the first question we tend to ask is, God, where are you? Where are you? And that's a fair question. That is a fair question. You're going to see David in this this series asking even more blunt and more difficult questions of God. But he asks, where are you? How many of us, if we're honest, have asked that question to God before? Some of us looking around and, and seeing what's happening in our nation right now are saying that. Where are you? But we have to go back to Genesis and we have to realize that God asked that question first. See, in my life, what I have seen is when I, every time I say, God, where are you? The first thing he puts on my heart is, where are you? You're complaining about the injustices. You're, in, you're complaining about all of these things that are taking place in your life, but you have the spirit within you that you can be an advocate, that you can be your, the church, you can be the hands and feet of Christ in alleviating some of these things. God, where are you? Where, where, where are you? What is your heart's condition and position towards God this morning? Because in the disruptions, God is not disconnected, though we tend to be disconnected. See, God doesn't withdraw his presence from his people. He doesn't. He can withhold. God doesn't withdraw. It's typically us going the opposite direction. It's always us, actually. He's learning how God is actively involved in the sands of the desert when things don't seem right. So what this teaches me is that we shouldn't despise our days in our spiritual desert because God is working in the sand. God is working in those times where you don't sense him. He is still present. And David is showing that that having this thirst for God 
will lead us to a place of dependency and devotion to him. You see, when, when Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, he made this declaration that whoever comes to him and drinks will be satisfied. And a few chapters before that, check out what he says to a woman who is trying to satisfy her soul through relationships and brokenness. And John 4, I believe it is 13 and 14, says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, David is uncovering that in the disruption of life, he can still have the, the living water that God offers. And he's in the sand, and when water meets sand, guess what? You can form it. You can mold it. I can think of a thousand different things that we can use water for. Thousands. But sand by itself, I can't think of anything. What this shows us is that God is involved in the dirt of our life. And that we can't just think that God is limited to our personal sensations, our personal proclivities of, of God is, oh, I have to have this ecstatic moment in order to feel God's presence. No, God, a lot of times, is at work in the dirt, molding and forming us with the living water that he has provided through Christ. I want us to have that picture of God working. If you don't believe me that God does amazing things out of the dirt, just look at how he created man. Let's go read the Genesis narrative. So what does this tell us about our desires? Our soul's cravings for significant satisfaction and security, there's that desire there. What David is saying is that thirst is only quenched by God, only quenched by God. He has, he has found the source of satisfaction in him. And I pray that for us this morning. The second thing this, this text causes us to reflect upon is our devotion. Where are we devoted and what is the object of our devotion? See, oftentimes our desire informs our devotion. We taste something, we like it, and then we become devoted to it. <clears throat> Excuse me. But devotion here, it, what we see in David is that devotion informs and forms the disciplines of his spiritual walk and his disposition in life. The things that he does because of his devotion, because of, of his devotion, he is being shaped by God every day, even in the midst of life's disruption. So let's start with the disciplines. Typically when we're in a dry season where we feel like we're not sensing God, we do one of two things. We either completely detach and disconnect from what God is trying to do in our lives, or we discipline ourselves like crazy. And that is not a bad thing. Don't hear me saying that discipline is a bad thing. Being disciplined in our walk is a mark of spiritual maturity. And we see that. David says, I meditate upon you in the night. I cling to you. I praise you. I remember you. I sing to you. I lift my hands to you. He is a highly disciplined person. But what I want us to, to capture in this text is that David is disciplined because of his devotion in God. We cannot discipline ourselves to the point of devotion, which is so often what we try to do. We say, if I just do this thing, God will, I, will, I will sense God. If I do this one thing, I will sense God. If I do this other thing, I will sense God. But we have to first be devoted to him. 
And I think if we're honest, there are many of us who lack the devotion to God. And if we lack the devotion, we won't have our disciplines shaped by it. The second thing that we see about this devotion is that it, it, shapes, it shapes us. If we are devoted to God, if we are devoted to the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, he promises us that he will shape us. If you go to Romans 5 and 6, or sorry, Romans 8, 5 and 6, he says this. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but the things who live according to the Spirit, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. The things that David is seeking and the things that David is finding in the wilderness. Life and peace. He is being shaped by the spirit. He is being shaped and molded by God. And when we're shaped by God and when we're obedient to God, our disposition in life completely changes. We no longer desire the things of the flesh. We desire the things of the spirit because we have tasted that the Lord is good and we have tasted that the things of the world are rubbish from what Paul says. We figure out that the relationship that we're going to for our satisfaction, it won't satisfy the way we thought it would. We're, we run to the, to the new cars and the new items and the new homes and we think, man, if I just had this, I would be satisfied. Jim Carrey said, I wish that everybody would, would make millions so that they would realize it's not the answer. See, but when we're devoted to God, I heard one pastor put it like this, when we're devoted to God, we can pray to God for our desires, for our longings. We can be honest with him because we, we want to be authentically honest with God. We can say, Lord, these are the things that I crave. These are the things that I want. Replace them with you. See, we can pray for a million dollars. Or we can pray for the heart not to desire the million dollars. That's how a pastor once put it to me, and it really stuck with me. And as we are shaped by the Spirit, as we are moving towards the uh, spiritual disciplines and as we are being obedient to the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, we will naturally overflow with a couple things. With praise, he says, I will praise you. This is something that seriously lacks in the church today is an authentic praise. See, but this is one area that David, the closer he comes to God, the more he knows God, the more he desires to worship and praise him. He doesn't dwindle off into spiritual dullness and then mistake it for maturity. He comes to a point where the only thing he desires is to praise God. Notice in this text, he is not asking for bread, for water, for any of those things we discussed a moment ago. He is asking for God. He wants to praise God and God alone. And he begins to remember. He's reflecting on God's faithfulness in the past to sustain him in the present. See, when you don't sense God's presence now, remember his faithfulness yesterday. That is something that we see all through the pages of scripture. Because immediately when disruptions happen, the first thing to go is usually God's character, God's goodness. But we have to remember how good God is. And we can do that by remembering and reflecting upon how God has been faithful in the past. That's a discipline that is informed 
by our devotion to him. And the last thing he says, I'll cling. I will cling to you. This is the same word to describe the perfect marriage in Genesis when God says, for a man shall cling to his wife. It's the same word. And what this shows is that this is a perfect grip that God has on us and that we have on him. But the most important thing about our devotion, the most important thing, is that we are only able to be devoted to God because he was first devoted to us. I want you guys to look at verse, I believe it's verse, uh, verse three. Because of your steadfast love, is, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Let's not gloss over that. Let's take a look at that. The word for love there is the Hebrew word that means what we would understand as devotion, as loyalty, as faithfulness, as a covenant. This is a different type of love than what we see in a lot of pages of scripture. So what David is saying, let's, let's, let's look at this. Because of your devotion, because of your covenant and faithful love to me, I will praise you. Because of your love, I will overflow in praise. God is so devoted to you, church. So devoted to you. And notice, his understanding of God's devotion removes any indifference he has about God in his disruption of life. He has no indifference towards God. So often we come to disruptions in our life and we become indifferent towards God. We say, I'm messing with this. And we begin to step out of church and we begin to step out of community and we begin to step out of evangelism and generosity, the things that, that shape and define who we are as Christians. David is teaching us that a proper desire and a proper devotion that is, that is informed by God's devotion to us removes all indifference. And I think some of us are in a spiritual desert this morning because we are sensing indifference in our lives. Devotion removes the indifference. See, David's disruption, he was a king without a throne. That had to be hard. But he was faithful to the king who was on his throne. He, he knew that God was in full control of the situation, that God was working in the dirt of life, and that even in the disruption, he could find desire and devotion to him. Church, you can find a, a thirst like David. There's nothing special about David. In fact, some of us, if we're trying to measure, we may morally be a little bit more preserved than David was when you read the story. He had committed conspiracy. He had murdered, adultery. I don't think anybody of us in here have murdered, hopefully. But it's not about the morality, it's about his heart after God. See, he came to a place of repentance. David is described as the man after God's own heart. He is the only man in scripture referred to as the God, as a man after God's own heart. You think, well, what about Jesus? No, Jesus had the heart of God. Jesus is God. So the same God that David is worshiping came to dwell among men to show his devotion to us by dying on the cross so that in the disruptions of life, we can find a a desire and a devotion that satisfies our desire for significance, satisfaction, and security, something we all crave and long for. 
See, I, I wanna share with you guys a little bit about some of the disruptions that I've had in my life, my wife and I have had, my family and I. I wanna preface it by saying I'm an introvert. So I typically, I typically don't share a lot just by my nature. So bear with me. I wanna show, show you a picture of my family. I've been here two years. I haven't shown you guys a picture of my family. Thought I'd do that. There we go. Got it right in the face, right? Like it's really good. I mean, I've got my hipster shirt going on. Um, this is my son, Cove. He just turned four. My wonderful wife, Christy. There's a stud, that's me. My little baby girl, Maggie. We got married in 2010. We just celebrated our six year anniversary back in May. And God has been faithful, he's been so faithful. But we've had some disruptions in our life that created a distance between us, for me and God, us and God and us and one another. You see, when we first got married, it wasn't three weeks after we got married, I got laid off from work. And this caused a distance immediately because Christy then began to work night and day. I was working at a church, but not much. I could probably pretty much pay for the gas that she was using to drive to and from work. I actually, believe it or not, I actually did farm work to try to provide, making about $7 an hour, working eight, eight hours a day on the farm. I'd do post hole digging and I would bail hay. I know you can't tell. That's what all you guys are thinking, but I did. It still wasn't enough. So Christy and I, we had to up and move within months of getting married, away from everybody that we knew around, away from everybody that we loved. And within a few months, we got pregnant. We were excited, but scared. Go to the doctor, receive some bad news though. Christy, you're miscarrying. This miscarriage created a distance between her and I and between me and God. I didn't understand. It was a disruption. That distance got larger and larger and larger between Christy and I and between God and I. And I remember crying out like, where are you? And God used a handful of men at a church to invest in me and to show me that God's position hasn't changed, mine has. I'm the one that moved. And these guys taught me through God's word that God is devoted to me, regardless of situation and circumstance. And if I press in, if I desire and I am devoted to him, that thirst will be satisfied. I don't have to understand my situation, but I can have a hope and a confidence that God would see me through it. So I remember coming home one day and I had a conversation with my wife. My wife has incredible gift of faith. She really does. Have you ever seen those people that have like nearly like an aggravating sense of faith? Like they're just so faithful. I mean, the world's, most profound atheist to come up to Christy and say, God doesn't exist. And she'd be like, okay, I'll pray for you. It's like, Ugh! I've craved to have that type of faith, but I'm a skeptic by nature. But I remember after understanding and capturing God's grace and devotion to me, I came home and I was standing in the, in the hallway and in the door. And I said, Christy, are we gonna do this thing? Cause here's the deal. This miscarriage and some other things that were going on nearly put us in divorce. We were this close to divorce. We had talked about it. We had, we had thought we had it figured out. 
but we, there's something inside that said, no, nah, that's not right. I came home and asked Chris, are we gonna do this thing? Are we gonna make it? And she said, yes, yes, we are. And from that moment on, that distance has begun to close and close and close and close and close. Christy and I are in a better place today than we've ever been in our faith and with one another. But in between what I'm about to tell you and that what happened with that miscarriage, we went through several disruptions. Found out Christy was, had a sort of cancer. Found out our son, Cove, had some craniofacial issues where he was gonna need surgery. Praise God, God brought us through all of those disruptions. He's faithful, God, God has done miraculous things. Christy is okay, the babies are okay. We've had Cove and Maggie and they're beautiful, they're wonderful, we absolutely adore them. But a few weeks ago really showed me how devoted, how God's devotion has informed my devotion and Christy's devotion to him and to one another. You see, a few weeks back, we, feel, we found out that Christy was pregnant and we were, we were jacked. I mean, we were excited. We go into the doctor and said, okay, you're this far along. Next week, you should see a heartbeat and you know, we're good. So we come back two weeks later and we don't see a heartbeat. And we're thinking, where's the heartbeat? It's supposed to be there. It's not there. Where is it? What's going on? doctor said, you're, you're probably miscarrying. He was not optimistic. So the church surrounded us. Our staff prayed for us. Families were praying for us. We wanted to see a miracle. We, were, we wanted to see a miracle like no other. Because we've been through this before and some of you guys are going through this or have gone through this or will go through this. It's tough. And through prayer and through everything, I still had problems mustering up the faith. And we prayed, I remember Chris and I prayed, Lord, please just, when we go into our next appointment, we had an appointment the following week, if we, let us miscarry, just let us miscarry. If that's what's gonna happen, let's get it done and over with. But if we see a heartbeat, Lord, let that be a sign that we will have life. Let that be an indicator of your power, your presence, your glory, and that, let that heartbeat beat on. So, and I remember specifically praying, because this is Mother's Day weekend. I said, anything, just go, God, just do not let this happen on Mother's Day. And it didn't, it didn't happen on Mother's Day. And Wednesday came around, we had our appointment, and we saw a heartbeat. And the doctors were confused. They're like, ah, oh, this wasn't supposed to be there. And we got on the phone and we started texting all of our friends and all of our church and everybody was going, praise God, he is so good. He is so good. We were excited. Thursday came around. Christy felt something was wrong. Go to the doctor, they take some blood work. They said, we'll call you tomorrow. We're back here. I'm having a meeting with Brandon and with Sean Fox, guy who plays drums here this morning. And I'm like, where's my wife? It's just us up here on Friday. So I went to go look for my wife and I heard her crying from the hallway of the offices into the girl's bathroom. And I knew, I just knew. 
I dropped my stuff and I ran in there and, and she was sobbing and I, I sat on the floor with her and I grabbed her and I was mourning with her and I was praying over her and she was praying and we were praying like, God, like what's going on? We found out that her blood levels were going, or her HGC levels were going down and that she is miscarrying. We saw life. We saw it. We saw the heartbeat that wasn't supposed to be there. And it was going to be gone. Two days later, she miscarried. But something remarkable happened with us. It didn't create a distance. It reinforced our devotion. Because I was praying, I had little faith. And one guy I gotta brag on is my friend Sean, he's gonna be up here in a second playing drums. He, he texted me every day saying, I'll have faith because if you don't have faith, I'll have it faith for you. He was always encouraging me and that meant a lot. And it, and it caused me to realize something. It caused me to realize that my prayer was, was weak in the way that I don't think God was waiting for me to pray a good prayer before he would do something. I don't believe that's what he was doing in this case. But my, my, the condition of my heart was, God, if you're gonna do it, just do it. If it's gonna happen, just let it happen. I wasn't praying for a miracle. I wasn't praying. My heart, my heart's position wasn't. Maybe my words were. But that's what I was inclined to believe. I wanted it, but I wasn't sure God would give it. But after I saw the heartbeat, I felt like I saw the touch of God in my wife because that heartbeat wasn't supposed to be there. And had, here's the deal, had God allowed it to happen when, when I was praying, God, just let it be done, let it, just let it pass, let's move on. Before I saw that heartbeat, I would have been indifferent towards God. I would have been like, told you so, God. I knew you weren't gonna come through on this one. I know some of you guys can relate. But that heartbeat showed me, God said, not now, later, but listen, I'm showing you that I'm in this with you. I, he, he did a miracle. He showed me how devoted he is. And this may not happen for everybody. And I pray for you and I hurt for you. My wife and I will mourn with you and for you. But I believe that that happened so I could stand here today and tell you that whatever you're going through, whatever disruption in life, God is devoted to you. He is. And he wants you to experience the satisfying love and grace that he offers that nothing else can. And that's how this Psalm closes. With a word of the King's devotion. What I didn't tell you, this is a mark of something that meant a lot to me, was that when I went to go get Christy on the floor, when I was, when I was praying over her, in her head, she was singing to herself, you are good, you are good. You are good. She was singing a song that we're about to sing in a moment called The King of My Heart. This is something that didn't happen the first time around. We had a deep sense of devotion to God and a deep sense of devotion to one another because we knew that God was devoted to us and we have tasted that the Lord is good and we want nothing more than his presence. We want his presence more than we do any sort of provision because without it, we will die. See, God removed my indifference and further formed our devotion to him and one another. And as Christy was telling me that she was singing the song in her head, the king of my heart, what that showed was her devotion did not distance her 
in the disruption of our life. Check out the last part of this psalm and then we're gonna go into worship. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. There's a nagging voice in your head saying, this is not, it's not for you, it is for you. The liar will be stopped. The lie that you're spirit is telling you, the lie that the enemy is speaking into your head, that salvation is not for you, that the joy of the Lord is not for you, it is for you. His word declares it. That's the invitation that the king wants to be king of your heart and he is a good king. If that's you and you say this morning, I reckon I've now put together the longing that I have and the Lord who put it there. And today is the day of salvation. I'm ready to be satisfied, secure, and find significance in the King who makes salvation possible. If that's you, say today is the day of salvation. Uh, maybe you've known about God, but today you're ready to know God. If that's you, would you slip up your hand so we can pray for you? Amen. Over here. Amen. <laughs> Will you stick up your hand one more time for us? Yeah, there you go. Anybody else? Anybody else? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you desire that life, it's yours this morning. Give me just one more second to slip up your hand. Amen. Okay. Well, this means that for the majority of us in here, that God wants us to be at a place of desiring him and devoted and being devoted to him on a day-to-day -day basis, on every day. So maybe you're in the desert. God may not pull you out, but you can find him there. And if you're going through something, if you're going through something that is causing a disruption in your life, this altar is gonna be open during the song. Come up here and pray. People will come pray with you. Stand there and worship. Show God the praise that he deserves for all he has done for us. Use this time of worship to declare that Jesus is the king of your heart and reflect that in your devotion and worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for who you are and what you've done through Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the love, the devotion that you have for us that informs the devotion of us to you. Lord, we cannot be devoted unless we recognize that you're devoted to us. Lord, your grace and your mercy comes after us. Lord, like Adam and Eve, you pursue us and chasing after us and you wanna know where we are so that we can reflect upon that and be found by you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. Won't you stand and worship with us?